Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Big Tech House. As I peek suspiciously through the square window, what do I see? Our tech guru, extraordinaire even, Matthew Dickerson. How's your week been, Matt? Really good, James, and I actually just want to say to everyone, I think I've made a small mistake, so I want to own up to it. We often talk about electric vehicles, and we talk about an electric vehicle revolution. It's our staple diet. It is, but I think I've got that wrong, James. So I want to say sorry to everyone. Oh. I think it's not an electric vehicle revolution. It's a battery revolution we're having. And it struck home to me the other day when I went to help someone at their house just with a little issue they had, and they were showing me some of their new toys. And all their new toys, and I say toys in inverted commas, were a new lawnmower and a whippersnipper that were all battery operated. So they were very proud of themselves that their house was now completely petrol-free. No internal combustion oh, engines. Wow. They yeah. bought an EV, but all of their other devices were all electric. Now, I, my household moved that way about three or four years ago, but I kind of love my EVs and love my electric devices, so that was fair enough. But when I started seeing what I would call average Joe Blow converting their entire house away from internal combustion engines, yeah, then right. I went, wow, this isn't an EV revolution we're in the middle of right now. It's a battery revolution. An and then you start everything. to think about how much better those batteries are. So it started maybe with our electric razors that used to be plugged into the wall, and then we've got batteries in them that you charge once every couple of months and you can do your shaving with them. And mm. it started to move on to different things. And I know just with the electric lawnmower, I've actually got a robotic lawnmower, so that does most of my lawn, but I do have electric lawnmower just for some little bits that I might need to tidy up every now and again. And I know the batteries used to buy for that, a certain size were 2.4 amp hour battery mm. size. And then it was only about a year later, the same physical size was suddenly five amp hour. So suddenly mm. you had this progress that was happening just in batteries you plug into your lawnmower. And then those batteries are good enough to run a little chainsaw or a little whippersnipper. So you just get away from all of these internal combustion engines. And so that battery revolution is happening. So I apologize to everyone. It's not an electric vehicle revolution. We're in the yeah. midst of a battery revolution. Whether that's <laughs> on our electric razors or in our cars, it's happening. And there you have it, folks. Well, we've got a hell of a lineup today with uh, a tantalising bit of sex in space. Dim the light for that one, folks. Um, we've got taxis taking to the air and tattoos for non-committal bogans like me. But our first story is a cracker about levelling the playing field. I'd never been more appreciative of 2020 vision than when I was prescribed with my first pair of reading glasses about a year ago. To butcher an adage, you don't know what you've got till it starts to deteriorate, folks. For a long time, having taught students who are blind, I've held a sincere sympathy for those who can't see at all. Of course, for people who are profoundly deaf, there are a number of support mechanisms. The cochlear implant was a game changer in the 80s. But for blind people, support technology is essentially white canes and guide dogs still. Matt, modern technology is finally on its way to produce something meaningful for the blind. It's getting there slowly. And I did, a number of years ago, I did a little experiment with someone who wanted to just demonstrate to me how the blind world was. And they gave me a little test where they said, here you are at this particular part on the road and I want you to walk two blocks. That was it. They gave me a cane. Mm. They had someone who walked beside me to make sure I didn't go and walk in front of a car. And just going along, using the cane, tapping along. And you don't think about things 
But when someone in their shop had a display that they had outside their shop, for example, so there was one shop that had some clothes on a rack. I'm walking along, suddenly I'm tangled up in this clothes rack, and this person's saying, see, blind people kind of yeah. have these issues that we don't think about. A small lift in the cement, yeah. All those sorts of things. But then getting to a road, and actually roundabouts are really bad for blind people because with a normal intersection, they can stand there and listen to what's happening. But with a roundabout, there are people coming from all those different directions, oh, yeah. slowing down, speeding up. So I found getting past, and it wasn't at the roundabout, I was down away from the roundabout, but getting across the road there with all these cars at the roundabout slowing down, speeding up, which way are they coming, cars coming towards it. I just sat there frozen and, he, and the person before was coming yeah. in, okay, you can go now, you're sure, are you sure? So Hats off to people who have to live with this. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So anything that we can do to make the world a bit better for them is fantastic. Now, there were some infrared goggles I saw a few years ago that you could put on, and when I say goggles, it didn't matter whether you put them on your forehead or over your eyes, it, it didn't make much difference there, but they actually fed some little headphones in so that if there was something on your left-hand side, then it would give you some sounds in your left ear. The closer it was, the bigger it was, it's a different sound. And it's picking up through what infrared rays that are, are reflecting off yeah, the surfaces. The, yeah, the goggles are bouncing at infrared rays, picking it up and then giving you those sounds. But of course, blind people get very good at using their ears. So feeding other sounds into their ears when maybe they should be listening oh, out for other, other sounds, that makes it even harder. What researchers have now come up with is something, the same concept, but they feed the information back to a blind person in a different way. So instead of having sounds coming in, they actually put two armbands on, an armband around their left arm, armband around their right arm, and use infrared goggles. As they walk along through whatever area they're trying to get through, there's little 25 vibrating pads on each of those armbands. And those pads are arranged, obviously, a five-by-five five square. So if it's something to the extreme left of them, it'll vibrate on those left pads. If it was something in the middle, it would vibrate on the middle pads. So wow. yeah, right. the intensity of the vibration and where it vibrates tells them where things are. And then, obviously, you've got the two arms, so you've got that stereo view of the world as you walk along. So they did some testing. They actually had a little indoor test route, and they didn't give them any information about it, no training at all, and they said, here's the infrared goggles, here's the vibrating armbands, and no cane, nothing else they would normally have to help them. And they got through that course in about 320 seconds the first go. Then they said, right, we're going to give you another go now without any additional training, you've been through it once. Hopefully they didn't just memorise the whole course. <laughs> but 148 seconds by the second go. And so I think just that idea yeah. of getting used to it and feeling where it vibrates. So a lot of hope out there. It's not commercially available yet, but this is the sort of thing that we're working on to try and get to that stage where we're giving blind people some hope, and we're not going to get to Steve Austin any time, I think, in our lifetimes when we've got a bionic <laughs> Six million eye. dollar man from yeah. the 70s. But uh, yeah. again, because it's just so much information that we take from our eye and feedback through our optic nerve basically directly into our brain. So trying to mimic that, and uh, we talk about it often that we try and mimic nature, but we haven't got anywhere near yeah. that sort of mimic ability at this stage. Well, it sounds like uh, it's pretty quick and easy to pick up too. Well, the other thing I think from this perspective is that you could wear normal clothes and have these armbands underneath the clothes. So it's not obvious that you're blind because obviously from a blind person perspective, they don't really want to have a big neon sign that says, hi, everyone, I'm blind. Mm. The goal could look like, say, normal sunglasses, presumably. Mm. So you could modify those to look whatever way you want. So people could basically walk along with a relative amount of ease and not be standing out as a person that everyone should maybe come and feel sorry for or help out or whatever. But I think most blind people want to be able to get on with their day. Well, that is remarkable for sure. Last week, we brought you a story about a delivery company using autonomous vehicles for deliveries, but using airbags to protect, protect pedestrians uh, in the, well, hopefully unlikely um, incident of, of crashing into one. And it raised a really important question 
for this particular field of technology, that's autonomous vehicles, who really is accountable for road safety in an autonomous car? Who are you going to sue? Everyone wants to know who you're going to sue, James. That's the big <laughs> issue here. Well, you know, I just if it's a it's an unretractable mess at the end of a of an accident, it's kind of cold comfort to to say, well, at least we can blame so and so. But yeah, uh, yeah, people do seem to want to be able to sue someone to get some money out of them, don't mm, they? So yeah. that is an issue. And what's really impressive here is that we do talk about it a lot. Legislation often drags along behind where technology is up to. And one of the examples that I found for exactly that, and there's probably lots of examples we see, but a really big example was when they started drafting some of the legislation around sex registers. So someone that's convicted of a sex crime, they go into a register so that they can be identified and there's different lengths of time they might go on those registers. Those registers started being discussed and brought into legislation in the early 90s. I think 94 is about the first one. The very first text message was sent back in 92. So text messages were being sent around the same time. Mm. No one thought of sexting back in 1992 when the first text message went. But legislation is there at the moment for sex legislation. If you send a sex message to, uh, say, a couple of 15-year-olds sending body parts, which I don't get, but that's another issue altogether. We'll talk about it another time. Then that could put someone onto the sex registry offender list. Yeah, right. Yeah. And it's not designed for a couple of 15-year-olds discovering their bodies. It's no. designed for pedophiles, someone that's a predator, those type of things. So that's where legislation has just completely missed the mark. Yeah, and it, it's constantly technology. chasing the technology because it just feels like it can't keep up. That's exactly right. But in this case, the UK has actually um, gone out to a firm and said, we want you to go and create what the legislation would look like, do the research, find out the information, pretend that we've already got autonomous cars now and we're trying to catch up. And so they came back with a whole range of recommendations and lots of information. The important one that I thought out of all this is the driver of the car is not responsible. If you're in a fully autonomous car, pretending they exist right now, and you're sitting there in the driver's seat, whatever that might look like, sitting there having a sleep, playing some games, who knows what you're doing, read a nice book if you want, and the car's involved in an accident, this particular report said, no, how can you possibly be held responsible? You weren't doing anything, you were sitting there minding your own business, just happened to be in the driver's seat, and the car was in control. So whoever created that driving system, whether it be the car manufacturer or some other contractor that was contracted to make that, they're the ones responsible. Now, I'm sure that puts shivers down the spines of all of these technology companies out there (laughs) trying to create these driving systems because they have a board of directors that probably doesn't want to be held responsible for someone's death or someone's injury because their autonomous car made a mistake in some way, shape or form. Mm. So I thought that was interesting. They've also got another range of reports. Now, at the moment, there are five levels of autonomous driving. So you start at level zero, which is basically nothing, and you go through them. Level one gives you a little bit of assistance in, say, braking or steering. So cruise control, for example, would be a simple example of level one. Level two's got a bit more automation. It might do a couple of tasks for you, so it might keep you in your lane and have cruise control. So there's a fair few cars out like that at the moment. So you keep going through level three, level four. Level five is when you get there where there's full autonomous driving. So essentially... You probably won't even have a steering wheel. Don't even have a steering wheel. Don't even have pedals. Yeah, I'm still preparing my brain for that one. <laughs> That's a bit it weird. It might be it? still years away, but I've got to prepare myself for that. I even find it strange when you go to another country and you're on the wrong side of the road. That yeah. just feels a bit freaky that you get into the car and you go, and where's no the steering, steering wheel? wheel? And in front of me, there's one on the other side of the car, but that's a bit freaky. But then when you get in one where there's no steering wheel. At all. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so. So that's so, a level five. That's a level five. So 
some of the information that came back from this report said you shouldn't have all these levels of autonomous driving because that's just confusing. You should have a car that's autonomous or not autonomous. Let's make it binary. Black and white. Black and white because if you have a car that's at a level that can be autonomous but you could take over, then there's a whole bunch of information they've got to find out after an accident, for example, Mm. were you driving at the time or were you in fully autonomous mode? So Mm. there's a bunch of research. If it's just, oh, that's model ABC car, that's autonomous, there's no argument, there's no discussion. Yeah. It had to be the fault of the company rather than the individual sitting in the driver's seat, which was a bit easier when you've got no steering wheel and no pedals anyway. So <laughs> it's pretty hard for that person to argue yeah. they were in control of it. So uh, we're removing all the shades of, or trying to remove all the shades of grey. Exactly right. So that we can just say it's autonomous or it's not autonomous. That's fine. The other thing that, or one of the other things that they had in their recommendations was that they need to have some comprehensive way that was common to all autonomous cars that gave them data and information after an accident. So a bit like a black box in an aeroplane. Something like that because it would make it much easier for researchers to find out what the car was doing, what it could see around it, what the sensors were picking up, what the accelerator, the braking, all those components. So again, you see air crash investigational shows like that and you see all this incredible information about the throttle position and what the engines were doing and how fast they were spinning. So they can really narrow that information down to try and identify what's caused a plane accident. The report said you should have that same sort of thing with autonomous driving because if they want to make the cars better, if there's going to be some good coming out of some accident that happens, let it be that other people's lives will be saved or other yeah. people will, will have that accident averted. So it was quite an interesting report, but I, I do admire the fact they're trying to get ahead of the game in this scenario to actually be ahead of the technology, be ahead of where it's up to and have legislation in place. The technology companies might argue about it all day long, but at least the technology would be following the legislation. Yeah. Yeah, it's a different way of thinking about that, well, specific topic of the legislation. Is there anything more frustrating than watching the meter run when you're in a taxi stuck in peak hour traffic, folks? Well, go for an Uber, you say. At least then you know how much it's going to cost you straight up. But what if you could just brush off the traffic altogether? Well, they're doing it in places like Rome and Dubai with flying taxis. And flying taxis may be in Australia as soon as 2025, I read. It's caught the eye of Boeing, and now they want in. Matt? It's a big market, James. The analysts predict that the flying taxi market will be a $150 billion annual revenue industry by 2035. So still a few years away, but obviously you're not going to turn up to 2034 and say, right, we better get that taxi ready to go for next year because it's going to be a huge industry. So Boeing has actually just invested $450 million into Whisk Aero. Now, Whisk Aero was started up by Larry Page, co-founder of Google, of course, so he's got a couple of dollars in his back pocket. Uh, Boeing and Kitty Hawk is the joint venture that has created this company called Whisk Aero. So Boeing's put in $450 million. I don't know exactly how much Larry's put in, but he's probably put a couple of his dollars in, you know, maybe <laughs> 1% of his net wealth or something like that. Yeah, so, still so, enough. Yeah, a few dollars there. And the idea here, obviously, is that they believe this whole air taxi market is going to be huge. So Boeing, obviously, have been mm. a leader in aviation for decades. They want to be there. Now, when they've done their predictions, they've said that they haven't gone as far as saying the actual revenue dollar figure, but they've talked about how many flights. And they, they predict that within the next five years, there'll be 14 million flights that'll be happening in air taxis around the globe. Now, they've wow. picked 20 major markets. So I imagine that 
country New South Wales, it's probably not going to be one of those major markets where we'll see air taxis because we don't get stuck at too many traffic lights and we don't have huge lines of traffic. But I imagine somewhere like Sydney would be one of those 20 major markets. You can mm. only imagine places like LA, places like London, places like Beijing. We mentioned Dubai. Mm. Some of those major population centres that have got a, enough dollars behind them with their residents there that they would use air taxis, they're some of those major markets they're focused on. Well, in my research, uh, when I was looking into this earlier on, uh, Melbourne and Brisbane apparently are really keen on this. Well, I think they are, just whether or not some of these companies actually decide that there's enough yeah, congestion and enough yeah. people to go there. It would be great. I can really see the major capitals in Australia. So down mm. the East Coast, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, you might even get as far as Perth, for example. But I think they'll really focus on those cities that have got the population of Australia in one city and yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and the congestion that goes along with that and just try to get to those places because, again, you could live not very far distance-wise, but you'd spend an hour getting to work in some of those places. Or it could be 15 minutes. could be 15 minutes in an air taxi. Of course, the problem is, and this is obviously where a lot of the research is going, at the moment, it's fantastic because you've got all this three-dimensional space to work with, but how long will it be before that three-dimensional space becomes very crowded? Yeah. So then having these air taxis that have got some awareness of each other, some good avoidance systems in place. Planes have got some great work that's been done over the years in getting these avoidance systems in place. But again, you've got planes that are going along 1,000 feet of separation between directions they're travelling in, and you've got all this sophisticated equipment on there. But again... In the scheme of things, there's not a lot of planes up in the sky. I mean, it looks like yeah. it when you see a map, but there's a fair bit of space up there as there well. There's a big space, yeah. But air taxis, again, you're not going to be going way up. You're not going to go a 1,000 feet separation between distances because you don't want to go that high. You don't want to go very high at all to go from A to B in a city. You yeah. don't want to spend all your time going up and then coming down. So it's a really interesting space. But when you see companies like Boeing throwing in almost half a billion dollars, then you think, yeah, someone's a bit serious about this whole industry going forward. Yeah, and look, um, some of the videos on the internet right now are really cool. They're Kind of look a bit like a helicopter. Not exactly like a helicopter, but uh, yeah, halfway between a drone and a helicopter, I guess. Yeah, I think you're right. And some of them have a variety of number of propellers on them. So mm. they sometimes look like a helicopter. Sometimes, as you say, a drone where they might have four or maybe mm. even eight propellers around them. Other ones that I've seen that are really interesting actually tilt their wings. So there's some that have actually been doing some experiments in Australia where they tilt the entire wing so that it's vertical, so they can take off vertically because that's more convenient, and then it will tilt the wing so it will fly more like a fixed-wing aircraft because that's yeah, more right. efficient than using a drone like let the air keep the plane up rather than the, the spinning propellers. And so they turn their wings and fly, and then when they come down to land, they, they turn their wing back down again. <laughs> so a whole range of different models out there. I'm sure we'll probably see different ones until finally it becomes one that's the obvious, more efficient model. But it is pretty exciting space. And there you have it. We're living in the future. Absolutely, there's evidence there. Now, I've never really entertained the idea of getting a tattoo, people. Maybe one day after I sail Cape Horn in a 100-foot schooner, I'll mark the occasion with a little forearm colour. But the idea of settling on a design that I like in six months, let alone 20 years, seems a bridge too far for me. But the demand for tats has become enormous these days. And a bit of tech innovation has come to the rescue for bogans like me who refuse to commit to anything. And, it, uh, and, and I'm, you know, I'm only going to commit to anything that's got a stick of bubblegum that comes with it and washes off after an hour. You remember those bubblegum tattoos? <laughs> I do remember those, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You'd lick the tattoo and stick it on there. Yeah, that's right. Hold it on there for 30 seconds and, and then you'd have a pirate ship or something. And, and that was my kind of tat. But uh, no, um, we're set to revolutionise uh, the world of tattoos, Matt. 
Well, one of the industries that I think will be a boom industry in years to come, if someone said to me, what's the business I should start in 10 years' time, I reckon it would be tattoo removal. I reckon that's mm. going to be the mm. boom industry. And you see some people that have got the entire skin covered with tattoos and, wow, you can just see them walk in the door and say, just hand over your house and I'll start removing your tattoos for you. Yeah, wow. But this is a better solution. There's a new device out that allows you to put on a temporary tattoo, not quite as temporary as the licking the sticker out of the bubble gum and putting that on your skin, <laughs> but you can actually design the whole design on your smartphone, send that design across to the device, and it rolls out a tattoo within about three seconds. So it puts a tattoo on your arm from this device. Yeah, wow. It's water fast, but not soap fast. So you can go out in the rain, you can just have it on your normal skin, and then when you finally get to the stage where you want to wash it off, you get the soap to it. Or after a couple of days, about three days of just normal wear and tear and a bit of water on there, it'll just fade off by itself. So that's more like my kind of tattoo so forget this 20 years thing this lifetime thing three days I actually think there's probably a market for maybe somewhere in between forever and three days I think maybe if they could come up with six months a year then you get your girlfriend's name printed on your arm and then when you break up it doesn't matter you just go oh well it's only got a few more months to go well that Saturday night night drunken tattoo yeah Yeah, you can can get that get whatever you want especially the facial tattoos they're the ones that I see people get what happened there oh it was a dare from a mate of mine at 3am whatever across the forehead yeah that's right so and the spelling mistakes they're the ones that are my favourites when people get their their tattoos on and I saw one there that had no regrets and regrets were spelt wrong so (laughs) So this is a really good design. The tats can be up to one centimetre high, so not very high, and 100 centimetres long. So that's a long leg or a long arm that you can put that on. Now, this is just one model. I assume there'll be other models that will come out using the same concept. Uh, And the one centimetres, I'm sure there'll be ones that will come out two, three, four centimetres. So you can put that on there. But I can just see kids going home and saying, hey, mum, look at my tattoo, and just gauging their reaction. If it's not too bad, they might go (laughs) and get it permanently. If their poor mum has a heart attack and they're thrown out of the house, they might go, oh, I'll just come back after I washed it off then. So (laughs) there might be some good positives out of it there. But it sounds like a pretty cool idea to me. Yeah, I think I'll go get myself a sleeve tat and then change my mind (laughs) later on. and It'll be okay. Well, And that's right. The sleeve tat, it wouldn't take too long, actually. Just one centimetre strips, you just have to run the machine down your arm a few times and you're right because I imagine a sleeve tat I've never actually sat there but if you actually got a real tat there's probably a fair bit of time involved there I would say undoubtedly a lot of time and pain yeah that's right those, those <laughs> needles going in and maybe this is a good option for that's people. a whole lot of times around Cape Horn <laughs> that's, that's right I'm surprised you guys create for Cape Horn of all the achievements you could do going to Cape Horn well, and it actually comes um, from the original the anchor tat I believe um, right. the, the, the sailors used to get that was of a course, symbol that yes. I've been around Cape Horn yeah okay um, as I believe folklore has it and there's you know various different uh, those traditional tats from you know 60, 70 years you mean ago. when they meant something you mean it wasn't just a bunch of stuff over their bodies uh, and, and little reminders about my kids birthdays yeah that's right Amazon are always looking for ways to show their operations are on the cutting edge of technology and now they want to go green with a fleet of electric delivery vans but they've hit a hurdle Matt what's gotten in Jeff Bezos's way well, the slight hurdle, and we go back to my original comments in this podcast about batteries, the hurdle is they just can't get enough of them. They're trying, they're investing in various companies like Rivian. They invested a huge amount of money in Rivian, and the Rivian utes that they're bringing out look fantastic. They're obviously trying to create delivery vans as well because Amazon has a lot of delivery vans on the road. I think somewhere in the vicinity of about 175,000 vans they have on the road out there delivering yeah, Amazon wow. goods to people. So they've got a couple out there. So you can imagine just... 
the vans they've got on the road at the moment, which obviously are mostly petrol or diesel ones at the moment, they're probably not doing great things for climate change as we speak. Mm. So they can see that as a company they can make a difference. So they've got some major orders in. They've invested in some companies like Rivian. They're hoping to get 100,000 vans on the road by 2024, although they've now said, sorry, we said 2024, but we actually meant 2030. So I don't know if they actually said 2024 and someone said, what, do you know how many batteries we'll need to get all those cars on the road by 2024? So then they said, whoops, we made a mistake about that. Sorry, it's actually 2030. But this is the problem they've got. They are trying to get enough electric vehicles on the road. They've already invested $1.3 billion in Rivian, so they don't think it's a little, maybe we'll think about it. No, that's right. They've got a bit of serious capital in there. Even though Amazon's got a few dollars in the bank, they don't like to throw $1.3 billion around. I imagine their board of directors still have a, a slight pause when they... Talk mm. about that kind of money. Yeah. yeah. Maybe just one more cigar before they go on to the next decision <laughs> on the board papers. So that's kind of where they're headed at the moment. But I think they're probably looking at what they could do because they're waiting for the Rivian order to come through. But they've also talked to companies like Mahindra, which is an Indian manufacturer, and they've got these little three-wheeled, a bit like a tuk-tuk, but in a delivery-type vehicle. So they're talking to them as well. So they might even have 10,000 of these little Mahindra vehicles on the road by 2025. They're looking everywhere to see who can make them delivery vans. Tesla haven't really ever shown any interest in delivery vans, although there is a big market there. Tesla's obviously gone to the traditional vehicle, the sedans and the sort of SUV type space, that seems to be where they think the sweet spot is. But gee, there's going to be some people out there making delivery vans for a whole range of companies. If Amazon need this many, then obviously you've got companies like UPS that need, and lots of delivery companies that need these sort of number of vehicles as well. So yeah, I can just see huge markets there, but again, getting the manufacturing quantity to the levels that we need it, that's the real issue here. Yeah, getting your uh, supply, meeting your demand. Yeah. That's the challenge. All right, now here's one to titillate our listeners. Sex in space. It's the next big thing for scientific research. I can't believe it's taken them this long. Forget joining the Mile High Club. This is literally next level. Matt, I guess this explains why they've installed mood lighting in the ISS <laughs> and they've got Barry White tunes pumping uh, 24-7 on, on loop there. I just wonder whether someone has had sex in the ISS. I mean, they probably haven't advertised, they probably haven't talked about it, they're probably not meant to. It's got to have happened by <laughs> Surely. Now. Well, maybe maybe in a shuttle or something because the shuttle's been going since the 80s. Yeah, so, that's right. So yeah. not a lot of room in there and you couldn't really be that private with your... your Fellow passengers on the flight, we're just going over to this corner of the cabin. Has anyone laid claim to it yet? We didn't do that bit of research. No, that's right. But there probably would be a lot of trouble if they had. But I imagine it's a bit tricky, but it probably is. But there's some significant research. Lots of Velcro. Lots of Velcro, that's right. There's some significant research going on because we're talking about going out in the next frontier of space. We're talking about maybe living on Mars. We're going further afield. Of course. If you're going to do this, you probably are going to need to go past a generation. You might want to be going out into far-flung stars, try and find a Goldilocks planet somewhere, talking about projects that might be hundreds of years. So it might be your great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy and grandmummy that took off from Earth all those years ago. But what happens when you're in space? What happens to the radiation? Because you're getting more radiation when you're Mm. in space. Is that starting to affect the sperm count, for example, or eggs? And then the next thing they started to look at was, what about zero gravity? Does it actually have an impact? And you would think, surely not. But our cells are obviously growing up 
used to having that constant force of gravity. Well, it definitely has an effect on plants. We know that. The way roots and shoots grow and whatnot requires it, gravity. That's right. Now, you've even got some plants that have been up in the ice. Haven't you? Well, we have. We're, we're planting some wattle seeds. Well, we have planted wattle seeds. We're going to see how they grow over the next 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. so there's research done there, but you would have thought someone would have done the research on sex before plants. Surely that would be more important. <laughs> so these are the things they're doing at the moment. So they're actually already taking my sperm up into the ISS, leaving it there for a little period of time, then bring it back down and then using those. That's not your sperm. That's mouse sperm. That's right. Not right, mice. Okay, sorry. Okay, that, gotcha. <laughs> Just to clarify that. Thank folks. you, James. That's mouse sperm and lots of them, meaning mice. However, if anyone does want to uh, donate sperm to the... Uh, I'm sure they're looking for it. So <laughs> We'll so they, research some numbers to call. That's yeah. right. So they're taking some sperm from a mouse or two okay. and taking that up, leaving that in the ISS for a time, bringing back down, using that to impregnate another mouse and seeing what impact that's having. So the research is being done with lots of smaller creatures, but at some stage I reckon someone's going to have to say, hey, here's some of my sperm, take it up in the ISS, leave it there for a while, bring it down, and my darling wife wants to get pregnant, so let's use that and see what happens. So it's an interesting little space there. So (laughs) it's not so much about sex in space, which obviously as you start exploring other frontiers will probably happen as well, but it's more about about what happens to those components that we need to keep the species going as we explore this wild frontier of space. Yeah, yeah, exciting times afoot there. I wouldn't actually have thought that would have been the first thing. I would have thought how you continue to live and how you get the propulsion systems and all this. Someone in the back room said... What about uh, sex? What about, yeah, what about how we keep the species going? Yeah, oh, that's fine. We just, oh, okay, good question. We should think about that we one. Be careful that we can actually do it. Yeah. And that was decidedly less sexy than I was uh, sort of angling for, too, Matt. <laughs> Sorry about that. Say, yeah, what a buzzkill. <laughs> Now, we know that getting out into nature is excellent for our physical and mental health. Breathing the fresh air deep into your lungs, listening to a babbling stream perched on a cool rock surrounded by greenery, it's tonic for the soul, folks. For many of us, though, for one reason or another, getting out amongst it is either very difficult or impossible. Could there be an easily accessible artificial substitute that has the same effect, though, Matt? Well, the research that you talk about in terms of getting out in nature, everyone says, oh, of course, that makes you feel better. And sometimes researchers spend money, spend money of yours and mine, and go and do the research that basically proves the obvious. Mm. But sometimes it's still good to have that data there. And that's exactly what's happened around that nature, how does it make you feel. Extensive research has been done, and they found that when you're in nature, your stress levels are reduced, your feelings of anger and fatigue are reduced, your happiness level increases. I'm not sure how they level uh, measure your happiness level. Mm. Maybe your smile gets wider. I'm not quite sure there. And fewer symptoms of depression, reductions in symptoms of attention deficit disorder and hyperactivity disorder. So all wow. these things. So they're fantastic. But it's okay for you and I because we can access nature pretty easily. We don't live mm. too far away from nature or getting out in amongst nature. But for some of them might live in what you would have called a concrete jungle in apartments. Yeah or people that are in isolation, because that's been happening lately a little bit over the last couple of years. Can you get those same effects by going into that virtual nature? And so, of course, more research is being done, and the answer is yes, almost. So it's almost as good, and probably some of the physical things, like you mentioned, fresh air, because you're not changing some of those aspects, that's probably where you've got that slight missing link. But if you put on a VR headset, and that VR headset does nothing else but show you nice bubbling brooks or nature in trees, the ocean, that beautiful calming influence of the waves just coming in forever, those ebbs and flows of waves, 
all of those things that those images and the sounds, they've been proven to give you almost the same effect of what I've just talked about there in terms of reduction in stress, yeah, right. increase in happiness, all those things. We can fool our brains into thinking that we're in amongst it. Exactly right. Now, it is interesting because what happens when we go into nature? We see different things, we hear different things, and the third component that you mentioned is you're kind of smelling and breathing. So you're yeah. getting that aspect of it. When you put on a VR headset, or probably even if you sat in a darkened room with a nice big TV in front of you, then you're still hearing those same things, you're still seeing those same things, you're not getting the freshness of the air or the mm. smells there but don't give it too much time James there'll be someone out there who'll bring out the nature smell that you put on when you put your VR headset on so that you're getting the smell of nature as well and I don't know maybe you put on an oxygen mask as well to get the fresher air <laughs> but this is quite fascinating and I can see this being used imagine in a school environment when someone's misbehaving rather than say go and stay in the corner or rather than say go to the principal's office you say go to the nature room and yeah. just spend half an hour in the nature room give yourself 10 minutes of meditation exactly right and you'll come back not as angry not as frustrated happier and then you might be a bit calmer in class and teachers could do that as well possibly just <laughs> disappear kids Give me 10 minutes. <laughs> I'm just going to go for a bit of a nature it's, walk. It's probably a better option, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but it is interesting, isn't it, that we have this whole concept of getting out of nature. We think about all these things in nature, but it's really our body could be quite tricked, or our mind could be quite tricked by things that are virtually the same. Cryptocurrency. I've had so many questions, Matt, and investors will laugh at me for my sheepishness. My bank accounts are, of course, essentially just ones and zeros after all. But... Imagine getting paid your wages in cryptocurrency. Matt, is this a good idea around about now? <laughs> no, not at all. It's a terrible idea. Yeah, well, it depends okay. on the contract you've got. The New York City mayor is very proud of the fact that he, many months ago, came up with the idea and said, I'm so much of a fan of cryptocurrency, I want to be paid my wage in cryptocurrency. Yeah. Now, he earns about US $260,000 a year as the New York City mayor, and good luck to him. That's fine. So the only problem is, and I just don't know the fine details of his contract, but Bitcoin, for example, most cryptocurrencies, most of the big cryptocurrencies, have about halved in value since November last year. Now, when he halved. signed his contract to say, yes, please pay me in Bitcoin, if he signed the contract and said, I've now done the calculation, this is how much I'm going to be paid, you know, 0.1 of a Bitcoin or whatever it might have been per month, that might have sounded great then, and go forward a couple of months and suddenly he's getting paid half. Now, if he just said pay me the equivalent of this many dollars in Bitcoin each month, and that contract's probably okay. But then mm. I don't get it. Because mm. if you just say to your employer, pay me the equivalent, if I get paid $100 a day, pay me that $100 in Bitcoin, well, why don't you just go and get paid your money and then buy your Bitcoin at your leisure? That's right. Unless you're trying to get around tax. That might be uh. the only reason the ATO may not have started taxing Bitcoin yet. <laughs> so maybe you can get paid completely tax-free. I would not encourage that to our listeners, obviously. Pay your correct taxes, <laughs> people's out there, please. But this is where the New York City mayor is at. He's getting paid that. And whether it's good for him or bad for him, then uh, that's yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Who knows? But the Miami mayor as well, maybe it was a bit of a contest between the two to see who could be the biggest hero. But the Miami mayor said that he'd receive his next paycheck in Bitcoin. He didn't talk about the future. He just said he'd receive his next one. Maybe he took one to prove a point and then went back to good old-fashioned cash. But I don't know how many people out there, some people are apparently asking for their pay in Bitcoin, but I don't know how many people out there will be doing it. And I'm not sure how many government authorities, like a mayor paid by some level of government authority, are actually happy to pay you in Bitcoin. That just sounds like a crazy concept to me. I'm still a long way from that myself. <laughs> <laughs> a long, long, long way from that. Yes, indeed. <laughs> 
The smartphone market is hot as magma, of course, with Apple, Samsung and Oppo and all their friends jostling for line honours every three months. For market watchers, it's a bit like race day at Randwick four times a year. Matt, what was the wind-up at the end of last quarter in 2021? It's actually really interesting news because Samsung are the number one seller of phones across the world still. They've been there since around 2012, which is about the time they took over from Nokia. And they're still sitting in that number one spot on an annual basis, but the last quarter of 2021 was Apple on top with a 22% market share. Samsung were just sitting behind them at 20%. Xiaomi, way back in third on 12%. Oppo, fourth, 9%. Vivo, 8%. And then all the rest, which is obviously there's still a lot that make up to get to the 100% mm. out of all of those. Now, that means that for the fourth quarter, calendar year quarter, Apple were in front, but Samsung still won the year last year. And it's not uncommon for Apple to go really well in the fourth quarter because they normally bring out their new iPhone in September. So sales, October, November, then through Christmas, you've got this shiny new iPhone to sell. So their numbers usually go quite well. Samsung typically bring out their new flagship product around February, sometimes March timeframe. So they get a, a usually a big bump in that first and second quarter of each calendar year. Again, overall, they tend to be out in front. But yeah. And no sign of BlackBerry in there at all. No, no, uh, just <laughs> not, not quite there. Supporting uh, the market anymore. We haven't got enough decimal places to get down to right, where, where BlackBerry market share is at the moment. So they're, they're, it's interesting though. It is interesting to keep an eye on it. And when you get companies out of China, for example, you are in China and you release a phone that Chinese people like, suddenly you go shooting up the list because China accounts for a large part of the market. Mm. It seems to be much more than India, for example, even though the populations are fairly similar. But again, we tend to think of, in our country, in Australia, we tend to think of Apple. Everyone's got an Apple. Everyone I see, everyone I know has got an Apple phone. And in Australia, their market share is much higher. They're more like about 55% market share in Australia. So our general impression is that Apple are much higher market share. But worldwide, no, they're normally sitting one or two in those spots there each quarter. Sometimes I'll drop back as low as third or fourth maybe. Yeah. Again, if some of those Chinese brands come forward a bit further. But it's different to what we see on the ground because Australia is such a small proportion of overall phone sales across the world. Mm. Well, I'm going to have to stop you there uh, anyway, Matthew. The, the hourglass has run out of sand and can't be tipped over for again for another week. There you have it, folks. It's out of our hands. I don't make the rules. <laughs> and thanks again, Matt, for another sterling week of talk and tech. Absolutely. And I'll go back and get those batteries of mine charging up, get those solar panels at work and make sure all my devices can keep bringing those batteries. <laughs> and I'll have to get a skin full of cheap liquor and a temporary tat. Maybe a dagger with a skull and a banner that says, my mama didn't love me. <laughs> Small disclaimer there. Apologies, mum. That was a lie. Even though a cheap gag. <laughs> I'm James Eddy. Thanks again for tuning in to Tech Talk with Matthew Dickinson. It's been an absolute pleasure. See you again next week.